So in every uh, long plane ride that I take by myself, eventually there comes a moment where I have to decide to out myself as a minister. Because invariably two things happen. Long, very uncomfortable silences or someone's life story that I get to be on the receiving end of. I was flying back from Denver recently from a conference of other UU ministers who have experiences and growing congregations. And I was reading a book about congregational health and vitality. And the guy next to me saw that I was, you know, reading something about churches. And he asked, you know, are you involved in a congregation, spiritual community? I said, yes. He said, pause for a second. Are you a minister? I said, okay, there's two and a half hours left in this flight. What do I say? (laughs) Yes, I am. He said, what tradition? And that second word, universalism, had not gotten out of my mouth, and I heard him inhale. I had hit his heresy sweet spot. Now, because there were two and a half hours left in this flight, I didn't want to spend it in fruitless argumentation with this guy. So I go back to my old standard. Tell me about your faith. Listening, I figure, is a better way sometimes, most times, than arguing. And he continued for 10, 15 minutes straight to describe his perspective as a dispensationalist. And if you know what that is, it's a form of evangelical Christian in which, uh, well, I'm not going to spend 15 minutes now describing it to you, but it's this, (laughs) is that God has had successive dispensations to forgive people for our inherent, this is not my view, this is his view, our inherent wretchedness, our original sin starts with Noah and then Human beings screw up, and then there's the Hebraic law, and then they screw that up, and then there's the rule of grace, as he explained it to me, which is the time of Jesus Christ, and then eventually for people like him, not like us, though, under his schema, there's going to be the rapture left behind. Any of you recognize this story? He's going to be raptured up to heaven. We're going to have to stay around for about a thousand years of tribulation. So, you know, if he turns out to be right, we've got that to look forward to. And, you know, I just sort of listened, and um, I think I impressed him a little bit when I said, uh, so you're a premillennial dispensationalist. <laughs> and he is. That's what he, people who believe, like the Left Behind book series, you know, believe. That's who they are. At the end of his 15 minutes, I was not so much finding the experience disagreeable, although clearly I disagreed, <laughs> as much as I was just completely exhausted. If he had told me that he had found his way to Jesus because he wanted to know a deeper, truer love or because he had been so badly wounded in his life somehow or he wanted to experience forgiveness, that, even if I disagreed or didn't share the outcome of his faith, I could have understood the process. But I was exhausted at the end of his 15 minutes of describing his premillennial dispensationalist theology because it just seems so needlessly complex. One era after another, after another, after another, all necessary if any person wanted to experience salvation. We had to understand the entire thing or else we would wind up on the wrong side of history. Now I give you this story today because, yes, it's on an airplane, and, yes, we're bringing Lost, this message series, to an end. 
One of the critiques of Lost is that it is needlessly complex. I'd say it's wondrously complex. But the thing that kept me watching for all those years and motivated me to want to do this message series is that in spite, not because of, in spite of all that complexity, the stories on the show, the characters on the show are recognizable to us, are recognizable to me. There is simplicity and emotional accessibility in all of their lives, and that's what the spirituality of lost is all about. It's not about accepting all the wild things that happen. It's about recognizing that each of their characters in their own way are finding their way towards wholeness, which in our progressive tradition is the mark of spiritual maturity. No character on Lost, and that's what I end with him today, has more of that emotional accessibility and simplicity of being than Hugo Reyes. Also called Hurley, because we never see it, but he tells us early on that he has a little bit of a problem with vomiting. <laughs> we never see it, that's all that comes up, but that's why it's Hugo slash Hurley. Now, like everyone else on Oceanic 815 who crash lands at that mysterious island, who starts their walk towards wholeness from being partial, broken people, like everyone else, he arrives there in a state of pain, but in one way he is entirely different. Everyone else has been suffering just as he has been, but he, in learning to transform his pain, he has not transmitted it to other people already. Everyone else on the island arrives there broken, and they, unfortunately, have broken other people as well in their suffering. Hurley, Hugo, has not. But he has experienced the cruelty of the world. He has been hospitalized for a mental illness. He is the butt of many jokes about his weight. And yes, even though he won $114 million in the lottery, it does not make him happy. He believes actually that the money has cursed him. The other different thing about Hugo is that unlike Jack with his medical skills, unlike Kate with her tracking skills, unlike Sawyer with his cunning, unlike Locke with his hunting skills, Son with her planting skills and healing skills, Hugo at first seems to be only there for comic relief. He seems to be there just to make other people laugh. He wants to be so helpful. And he accepts that everyone else has gifts that are different than his but he knows at times that his gifts are not seen. But this is the thing that we find out. Life on that mysterious, magical island would not be the same without him. It would be a far more dim place. His simplicity is his creativity, which is his strength. And about the fifth episode, things are really starting to go to hell. People have died. They're starting to realize that this magical, mysterious island is also a very dangerous place, and everyone is stressed. They're wondering if they can find more fresh water. Everyone starts to be at each other's throats, and Hurley wants to help, but he just can't find a way to help. And so he picks up two sticks of bamboo, and he picks up some old shirts, and he picks up some golf clubs that were found in the fuselage, and he creates the first, and he hopes, last ever island open. <laughs> And he invites people out onto this plane. And they're saying, Hurley, we're trying to survive. What is this stupidity? What is this thing you're doing for us? And he says, dudes. That's the word that Hurley says more than anything else. Dudes, 
Rich guys go all over the world to try to get to abandoned tropical islands just to play golf, and now we have this opportunity to do so. And pretty soon, everyone, whether they're skilled or not, is picking up the sticks and swinging and experiencing the first joy that they have had in the entire time in the midst of all that misery and death and struggle that they've experienced, and they recognize that it's not just about survival. If we survive without joy, we have not survived. Hugo physically resembles, morally and spiritually resembles, perhaps one of the first great teachers that any of us had in the ways of simplicity and creativity and in the kind of knowledge which isn't smarts but is wisdom. He is like Winnie the Pooh. Hurley is like Winnie the Pooh. And if you've ever read the wonderful book, The Tao of Pooh, by Benjamin Hoff, it is about his way of explaining the ancient Chinese form of wisdom and religion and philosophical practice embodied all through the life and teaching of Winnie the Pooh. Winnie the Pooh is, according to Benjamin Hoff, according to the Taoist tradition, he is the uncarved block. He is as he is. His simplicity is his strength. The word in Chinese for that uncarved black is actually not quite poo, but it's sort of like, like you're trying to blow a bug off your sleeve. What the Taoist tradition speaks to us about is that at the basis of this universe, there is harmony and there is balance in things. That our ability to access and practice simplicity is also our ability to experience true joy. And that many of us, and I will cop to this, make our lives needlessly complex. Much more difficult than they need to be. Hugo lives this. This is what Piglet says about Pooh, and it also could be about Hugo as well too. Pooh hasn't much brain, but somehow he never comes to any harm. He does silly things, and they turn out right. Now, what I'm praising here is not ignorance. What I'm praising here is an attitude, an attitude that for all of us who live very, sometimes overly complex lives can take a look at and perhaps ask ourselves, are we missing the simple joy that is right here, right now, in the very midst of our lives? At the end of Lost, one character asks, tell me more about the island and another character responds, every question I answer will simply lead to another question. <laughs> this is not to say that the search for answers, which sometimes can involve great complexity, is fruitless. It's just that it's endless. It does not cease. There will always be more discoveries. There will always be more things that we can understand. There will always be more things that we need to master it's good to recognize in this kind of simple faith to complement to complement all the complexity in the world that in Pali, the original language of the Buddhist scriptures, in Hebrew and in Latin, faith is a verb. It is a way of existing in relationship with the potentials in reality that are never finished, never done, always inviting us to live and experience more. Too many religions, 
sometimes even our own, try to get it right. Try to get the one final answer. Every age, philosophically, scientifically, in many different ways, historically, thinks that they have the one final answer, the one true technique that will reveal all the mysteries and somehow everything will just become easier for us. But Taoism says it actually works in the other direction. That for all the technical knowledge we have, all we might be doing is making our lives, for all the good that that technological knowledge does, just might be making our lives more difficult. There is absurdity in claiming any ownership of reality in its deepest level. There's a wonderful old Monty Python sketch, which is from the late 60s, and so it looks really, really amateurish. It's of three soldiers, one English, one German, one French. And there's a video of a guy laying down snoring and you see his big, huge nose and you see these three tiny soldiers and each one takes their flag and plants it in this guy's nose and said, I claim this for England. No, I claim it for France. No, I claim it for Germany. I'm not going to do the accents because I don't do them well. The thing is, they are all one sneeze away from just being completely wiped off the map. They think they're in control, but they're not. Hugo reminds us, Winnie the Pooh reminds us, that remaining humble is the best way to remain open to life's possibilities, to know and remember all that we know and all that we cannot know. I love the fact that the sacred scripture of Taoism, the Tao Te Ching, opens with these words, as I know it completely unique in the world's scriptures, the Tao that can be spoken is not the original Tao. They start out right from the outset saying, if you try to get this right through knowledge, you're going to get it wrong. It can be experienced, but never fully comprehended. This is similar in some ways to what we say here at Wellsprings in our DNA, that we can experience God without being able to define God. We're just never going to get it right. And that's okay. In fact, that's liberating. Meister Eckhart, over a thousand years ago, amazing Christian mystic, said his prayer used to be, God Rid me of God. Similar in some ways to the Buddhist sentiment that says, if you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him. All that is to say is that sometimes we can build up with our knowledge, our sense that what is in here is actually what is only out there. And we need to recognize, all of us, that sometimes our concepts just cannot encompass all that reality is. We can experience it, but never fully understand it. I had a Zen teacher once. She was a Buddhist, Marxist, South Korean Christian. She made it all hang together. And I love people who can make disparate identities hang together. But she, with the complexity of her identity, taught me and some of the rest of us who are studying with her the most simple and in some ways the most healing mantra I have ever heard. She said, especially in times of complexity and especially in times in which you're not sure which way to go and you're overthinking and you're overthinking and overthinking, breathe in, what am I? The question, breathe out, don't know. Now at first, that might sound frustrating, but I have to tell you from my own experience, it's not. I find what that mantra does is it re-releases me back into that natural ease and that natural simplicity that is just there, that I don't need to control, but instead I'm simply called to experience. 
to be present and to be there. In many traditions, traditions, this is the experience of beginner's mind, remembering what it's like to have an unclouded view of reality, not overcome by our concepts, but to remain open to the possibilities of life that are right here, right now, not forcing it, but instead simply being receptive to it. More importantly than beginner's mind, I believe, however, is beginner's heart, which says even if we cannot understand, even if we have to say those words, I don't know, that is not the end of the story for each of us, that we can go deeper into the heart of reality with our own open hearts. There's a Taoist phrase, Wu Wei, wonderfully paradoxical. It means action without action, doing without doing, effortless action sometimes. At one point, Hurley, because he becomes trusted, because people think he's so simple, and also because people think they can take advantage of him, they come come across on the island a storehouse of food, an abundance of food. Hurley, you're in charge of this. And people start going up to him and asking, can I have, you know, can I have that uh, Snickers bar there? Can can a little bit extra peanut butter perhaps in there? And he becomes overcome and overwrought. What's the right way to do it? What's the right way to share this abundance? How do I not favor my friends versus the people I don't know? And he comes down finally to the most simple conclusion. As things get complicated, he decides, folks, it's there for all of us. Learn to share. I'm done. Where complexity is, there can also be simplicity. That's the story in many ways of Winnie the Pooh. And I have to tell you that another furry creature in my life has taught me that just this past week. My pet rabbit, Duop. Duop has an ongoing chronic condition that requires once a week a subcutaneous, which is to say a needle injection, which isn't that hard. You just got to hold her down and there you go. It's all done. However, twice a day she requires what would be in human sublingual oral injections. She does not like this. Who here likes going to the dentist? Having one's mouth pried open, have something forced into it is not a pleasant experience. And so she fights this and I've been fighting her. I sort of try and get her under the crook of my arm and hold her down and come on, get in there and it squirt and it moves and it moves and she doesn't and she, you know, she doesn't like it. And I get frustrated and she gets frustrated. And I thought, the Tao of Pooh, try a different way this week. And so instead of putting her up someplace high where she's uncomfortable, put her down on the floor where she feels a little more safe, and I just hold it up in front of her nose. Because the thing that I am missing is that this is medicine that rabbits like to take. It is sweet. It's like candy. It's not the medicine that she didn't like. It's me trying to force it into her system. And so literally she gets a little taste She backs off, and then, it's all so simple. I was making it complex. See, but I wasn't born a Hugo. Not at all. (laughs) And I didn't come from a family of Winnie the Poohs. Not in the least. But I would say I'm trying to aspire to be one. Because in the end, what Hugo knows is that he does not define himself by what he knows or what he can control, but by why and what he can experience and what he can share. I think there is an integral relationship between these three words, excuse me, these three three word sentences, 
two of them. I don't know, and I love you. Love is not mastery. It is presence and willingness to be present. I've shared this with some of you in the past. It is the most touching story I know of the connection between I don't know and I love you. Many years ago, I had a friend who had a very, very difficult, very painful relationship with her mother, complicated even more at the end by the fact that her mother had Alzheimer's, and it was one of those cases of Alzheimer's where the letting go, the letting go literally of her mind was painful, and there was acting up and acting out, and still my friend stayed in relationship with her mother until finally there was no more anger, there was no more lashing out, And her mother didn't even remember herself anymore. And every day, my friend would go to her mother's room in the nursing home. And she would lay down next to her in her bed. And she would brush her hair. And she would hold her. And her mother, perhaps not even knowing what she was doing, held her back. And they would just lie there and tell each other that they loved each other. Did her mother know that was the right thing to do? By that point, probably not. But it was so deeply healing for my friend because even at the end, when there is nothing more to know and nothing more to do, still there was love, and that love united them. This is, I think, the deepest meaning of what Emerson said when he wrote, what lies behind us and what lies in front of us are small matters compared to what lies within us. Right here and right now. Back to that flight, which fortunately for me, unlike Oceanic 815, did not crash land. Back to the conversation with Ed, sitting next to me. It stayed pleasant. But finally, I just recognized we had two different desires in our spiritual growth. That he really understood existence as a test. That all of us would either pass or most of us, honestly, would fail. Whereas I experience this life, I think at our best, our tradition experiences this life as a journey to be savored, recognized and beheld for its simplicity and for its joy, trying always to be content with what we receive in this day hopefully excited about each step. And if pain is part of that, to experience that pain and not just put it off and put it off and put it off. In Ed's story, I heard a different tale. The desire, and he was not a violent person, that life is about conquering. Life is about controlling, growing impatient with the insecurities and the doubts. 
And this was only my final comeback to him. I said, don't you think that right now there's another person, another two people on a plane somewhere, and the person sitting in your seat is a Muslim or a Jew who is absolutely convinced that they are just as right in their theology as you are in yours. Is that what is going to heal the world? Ultimately, I don't think so. To control life or to awaken our consciousness, these are two distinct choices. His theology seemed about an escape plan. I think ours are at its best. Is about how to experience the full measure of everything that is here. So as this message series arrives safely, we hope, and lands, I want to end with these words of C.P. Cavafy, the great Greek modern poet. There's a lot of people who this past week, and if you didn't watch it, don't worry about it, are really, really annoyed that Lost didn't solve all its mysteries. I loved it. I cried like a baby. <laughs> Multiple times. I did not feel cheated. It was simple and emotional and real and meaningful. Watching these people reach their understanding of wholeness. Cavavi said at the conclusion of his wonderful, wonderful poem, Ithaca. At the end, Ithaca has given you the beautiful voyage. Without her beckoning, you would have never set out on the road. She has nothing more to give you. And if you find her poor at the end, though, Ithaca has not deceived you. Wise as you have become, with so much experience that you have gained, you must already have completely understood what Ithacas mean. Journey well, my friends. Soak up the simple joys. May you have a safe landing. Amen. May you live in blessing. Let's pray together. God of our heart's deepest yearning. May we find that capacity that is already native to us and to our lives. That when we might feel overwhelmed or overcome or overwrought or overthought. To recognize that the problem may not be out there beyond us. May we recognize that sometimes, sometimes it is our own thoughts that undo us. May we return and return and return again to that most elemental aspect of life. May we have the capacity of soul and of spirit to find simple joy, honest love, and real wisdom. 
May that be so for all of us this day. Amen.